Our scripture reading today is out of the book of Mark, chapter 2. Mark, chapter 2. So we had our escape room last night, and I'm pretty sure everybody made it out. There may be one or two still down there. Uh, A whole lot of fun. Uh, Props to the high schoolers. Where are you at? The only ones to make it out. I'm still bitter about it, too. Uh, (laughs) No, we had an absolutely fantastic time. Uh, One of our leaders, TJ, back there, his brainchild, it was absolutely amazing. No way I could have come up with any of that, as I couldn't figure half of it out to begin with. But (laughs) uh, so much fun, so much fun that we had. Uh, One other announcement. Camp is this week. Where's my middle schoolers at? Hey, we got one. All right, there's one. We're go- one person's going to camp. <laughs> uh, we're leaving this Friday. Uh, be here at the church, 415. We're going to try and get out at 430. We got a long way to go to Susquehanna, so bring a book, maybe. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you need any extra information about that, I think we've already got packing lists out to parents. I think we got... Uh, extra information out to parents. If you're still looking for anything else, please contact us. If you have any more questions, uh, we'll be able to figure everything out for us. That is our junior high camp is this weekend. So Mark 2 is our scripture. We're going to start in verse 13 and read down through 17. Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the tax collectors and other sinners... They asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this day you've given us, for the word that you've given us, for the good news that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for this. We thank you for calling sinners. We thank you for being the doctor for the sick. Lord, I pray that you would bless this service today, bless this sermon we are about to hear. Uh, Lord, let it be sweet music to our ears. Let it build us up. Let it strengthen our hearts, Lord. Lord, we pray for everyone in this room. We pray for all those throughout this church, and we pray for those watching at home. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would just bless them this day. Let them feel your presence. Lord, we ask and pray these things in your name. Amen. I'd like to thank everybody. Uh, My sister passed away early this morning. I'd like to thank everybody for prayers and everything we've done, meals that were made for and delivered. My thanks go out to all that parents prayed. Thank you, Dean. Also, let's remember to continue praying, not just for Dane and his family, but also for the uh, 
the Troutman family, as, as Bill, as many of you know, through the uh, prayer chain and information, uh, still has a long way to go to recovery. The doctor did say that there will be a day when Bill will be able to fully use his right arm, but it will not be the same strength as it was the minute before the accident. Thankful that it could have been, and it wasn't thankful that it could have been a lot worse. And so we're, we're grateful for God's protection and for Dane's sister, God's provision. As what doctors could not do, the great physician has already done. She's healed. God, I thank you that the promises of your word is what we can stand upon. Your promises are not only something that we read, but your promises are evident each and every day. And I pray for Dane, his family members, and obviously for his sister's uh, children as they are mourning the loss of a family loved one. When words seem to fall, I pray, God, that your spirit would be there to encourage and to comfort. I pray, God, that somehow, some way, your name will be glorified. Obviously, Dane's sister is experiencing in your presence what doctors could not do here on earth. And for that, we praise you. We thank you for the way doctors were able to minister to our, our dear brother Bill in the reconstruction of his right arm. We're thanking you, Lord, that it wasn't worse. But yet at the same time, Lord, we realize that there's a long road ahead for his recovery. Pray that you would give him and his wife Kathy patience as they wait on you for the times of healing and also for the times of regaining of strength. The road is not going to be a short road. Doctors have said it could be up to a year. But Lord, we again realize of your plan and your sovereign will. And I pray, O God, that you would uh, bless Bill and strengthen him. Use him. Use him as a witness, as Peter would even tell us. To be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within us to anyone who would ask. And as he relates his accident Oh, Lord God, we know that he'll also relate the grace that he found in your hand. So you bless him. Others in our congregation who are struggling with the disease of cancer, Lord, we lift them to you and ask, oh Lord, for comfort in their time and their journey.
pray for their family members as they stand by and watch. And I'm glad, Lord, that you also see. And you hear and you heal in your time and in your way. Others, Lord, that are in their homes who can't be with us, I pray, God, that even as they join us this morning, whether on in this room or the fellowship hall, the middle room, or even at home, I pray, O oh God, that our hearts would be lifted in praise to You. And that our souls would be hungered and thirsting after righteousness. May what You have for us this day in Your Word be that which equips us for future days. Prepares us for ministry, for being able to share with those individuals who are asking questions now about eternity. So to you be the honor and the glory and the power, both now and forevermore. And I praise you in your name. Amen. Some of the most difficult passages of Scripture to fully grasp seem to be the easiest as we read them. This morning's is, is not an exception. I'm sure in years past or in sermons past, you have heard a number of diatribes and read a number of diagnostics, if you will, of this particular passage. In and of itself is not difficult to understand because we can draw to the conclusion that as Jesus mentioned in verse 17, that his purpose, his mission. But if we don't take time enough to camp here, we will miss some of the significance of this passage. Things that are not said sometimes are just as powerful as those things that are said. And it takes our inquisitiveness to want to find out what is the passage really talking about. Is there any more to it than verse 17? And oh, by the way, there, there is. There's plenty here to feast to fill our souls that we... Don't go away from the table hungry. We become satisfied with our Savior. The familiarity of the passage causes us to remember of where Jesus is. He is in the region of Galilee, which is obviously near the Sea of Galilee. It's in the northern section of Israel. The providence of Galilee is on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee. Across the way is an area called Decapolis. Later on in Mark's Gospel, in fact two chapters over, we find out that Jesus takes a trip over there to meet an individual who nobody else wants to deal with. He's called the wild man of Gadara. 
Well, here we find ourselves in the region of Galilee, in specific in the realm of the town or city called Capernaum. Capernaum was the area of expertise, excitement, and also enterprise. And Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. Some of your texts may say the lake. It's the same region. No, the Sea of Galilee is not as big as the Mediterranean Sea, nor is it big as the Black Sea or anything like that, but it is referred to as the Sea of Galilee. As Jesus is walking there, He's teaching, which is obviously one of the methods of the great teachers of that time. They didn't necessarily hold school. They didn't necessarily have desks and textbooks. But they would teach as they would walk because as they would be walking, they would be engaging the individuals to vision of things that he's talking about. We do not know what Jesus is sharing here. All we do know is that he's teaching. But he comes to an interesting individual. His name is Levi. In Matthew chapter 9, he's referred to as Matthew. In Luke chapter 5, he also is referred to there as Levi. The first question comes to mind, is it the same person? Is Matthew and Levi the same person? I would concur with a number of Different theologians that, yes, he is. Because in Mark and in Luke, because of whom the authors are writing their letters to, he would have been given a Gentile name. Mark is writing to the Romans. His text speaks of slaves, discipleship, servanthood. And so he would have used his Greek name, whereas Matthew, as he's speaking to the Jews, to the kingdom, would use his Hebrew name of Matthew. Luke's gospel is writing to the Greeks. His gospel is the intent of showing that Jesus Christ is the perfect man, which the Greeks held up as being the ultimate, if you will, edifice of what man could be. And so Luke would have used his Greek name, Levi. But what is interesting is he's referred to as the son of Alphaeus. There are some conjectures because in the next chapter, chapter 3 of Mark, it's listed there the twelve disciples. And there's another individual who is also given the name, the son of Alphaeus. We don't know if they're brothers, but all we do know is that when Mark gets to Mark chapter 3 and mentions the disciples, he changes his name to Matthew. I hope you can't hear that. My right hearing aid is telling me that my right battery is dying. And it goes, doo-doo-doo-doo. It's like SOS. 
It'll go out. That's okay. I still got my right one. When this goes out, then you're all in trouble because I'm going to speak louder. But anyway. He meets Levi in a very interesting place. He is at a tax table, a customs table. Capernaum is an interesting place because of the fact that it is a town that is busy with merchandise and commerce. In Capernaum, if you take the road that goes northeast, you get to the region of Damascus. Damascus, you might know, is the place that Saul was going to in order to capture first century believers to bring them to justice. If you go northwest, you go over to a town called Tyre. And Tyre was a port city on the Mediterranean Sea. Head south, and you come to Jerusalem. It also has a road leading to a town that's called Diocesaria. That would have been the capital of the region under Roman rule. In other words, no matter which direction you went, Levi was someone you didn't want to meet. A tax collector is an interesting individual because not only does he collect taxes for the Roman Empire, but he also collects taxes to fill his own pockets. He's given strict instructions from the Roman Empire as to how much each merchandise would be, how much toll to charge, how much to, if you will, give back to the Roman Empire, but no one tells them of how much they can charge privately. If you think the proposed 35% charge of income tax is going to be high, That was penance to tax collectors. You might remember in Luke chapter 19, Jesus meets another tax collector. His name is Zacchaeus. Same individual. And some of the same things happened as they did to Zacchaeus happened to Levi. Levi would have been rejected socially. He was despised. He and particularly were working for the enemy. He would have been a despised individual, not included in any social activity of the town other than as we sing later, as we see later, his own group of people that he could only associate with. Not only was he despised socially, he was, he was derided or denied spiritual activity. He was not allowed to go to the temple. He was cast aside by the religious leaders because of the fact that he was unclean. Unclean from the fact that not only was he an extortionist, but that also he did business with unclean Gentiles. 
He was excluded. Which brings us to the realization that there was no way that he could be forgiven under the law. There would be no exception. He was a cast out. Viewed also as a traitor. A traitor because he was a Jew who was extorting the Jews. You would maybe find his name and his picture in the Jewish post office as being America's most wanted criminal. He was a hunted man. But fortunately, as all tax collectors, they also had Roman guards. So the guards would have been there too, standing at his side at the time that he's doing business. He was despised, socially denied spirituality, but he politically was demonized. He had great temptation to literally take advantage of anyone who would come his way. And so with that, we see Jesus walks by him. And he says some of the most amazing words. Just two. Follow me. Follow me. That's not new because in chapter 1 of Mark, Jesus is going by the Sea of Galilee and he sees four fishermen. And he says to them the exact same words. Follow me. The text tells us that they left all. They were mending their nets. They were getting ready for the next fishing expedition. But yet, they left all of that and began to follow Jesus. But Levi was different. Once Levi left his position, he could never go back. You might remember after Jesus was crucified and put in the tomb that we see, according to the Gospel of John, that the disciples who were used to fishing were fishing again. They could go back to their occupation. They didn't lose any ground. They didn't lose any economic advantage. But when Levi left, that space was quickly taken over. He would never be able to go back. If things with Jesus don't pan out to what he thinks it could be, he won't ever be able to go back to that particular lifestyle. That brings me to a thought. Once in a while I get them. But the thought is this. How many believer people do you know that when life 
with Jesus head south. And things don't turn out the way they want them to be or anticipate them to be. How many of them hightail it back to the life that they once had? It's not easy being a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, later on, not only in Mark, but in Matthew and in Luke, and also in John, there's the portion where Jesus turns around and He sees individuals following Him and He says, if you're not willing to deny yourself and take up My cross, you cannot be my disciple. He sets a high standard. It's the world record that no one can reach on their own. Back in the 1968 Olympics when Bob Beeman, when he did what everyone thought was impossible, when he long jumped over 28 feet, they say that record will never be broken. Mathematicians and scientists have proven that that record will never be broken because man is not strong enough to be able to do it. There's a higher record that can never be broken. And it's the level of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. To us in the United States, that doesn't carry too much of a weight. It doesn't seem to be that laborious of a position. But in the culture back in Mark chapter 2, that was a matter of life and death. Levi could never go back. The position that he left has been left for the rest of his life. And yet we see that at the words of Jesus, something changes him. He holds a party. I would dare say this isn't the first party that Levi had, but it, was of a, but it was of a different timber than the previous ones. This was not a gathering of his co-workers or co-laborers. This was a farewell meal. In fact, history tells us that once Levi had this particular party, and when he left his home, he never went back even to his home. He had no other place to go but follow Jesus. Publicans and sinners are interesting stereotypes of individuals at that time. Publicans would have been relative to Zacchaeus, uh, tax collectors, and to Levi. But sinners, uh, who are they? 
The description in the Greek leaves to us an interesting word. Forgive me if I tickle your ears with a street word, but they were scum. They were nobodies. They were individuals that couldn't get the first toe into the temple area. They were dead men walking. The Pharisees and the scribes would have viewed them as unsavable. Nothing good in them to save, so we're not wasting our time. They're not worth it. They're on a, a scale of uh, environment to be the lowest, even in dirt. We don't talk to them. We don't associate with them. They don't walk on the same side of the street as we do. They're not worth our time. Do you realize that that's who we are? That's who we are. I just want to give this to you when... The Pharisees and the scribes talk to Jesus' disciples and say, why does your master, your teacher, eat with publicans and sinners? I have to say, amen, I'm glad he does. Because that's who we are. We are of no use in the world's eyes. We're lost. But I'm glad in the economy of God that He sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law that we might be called sons and daughters of God. We're not even told what Jesus speaks of to these publicans and sinners. All we do know is that they are intently listening to His words. For He spoke to them like the religious people would never speak. He speaks to them with compassion. He speaks to them as importance. He speaks to them on their level. But all is not well. Not only is publicans and sinners at this dinner, not only are Jesus' disciples, in fact there would now be a total of five that were there, But there were, as it says in the text, in verse 15, for there were many who were following Him. You kind of wonder, are these the leftovers from the previous experience? Are these the ones who were there in the house and saw Jesus not only heal the paralytic, but even say, your sins, son, your sins are forgiven you. 
which riled up in them in their hearts, though they didn't speak it, but it riled up in their hearts as they say, who can only but God forgive sin? And Jesus says, you're right. And I'll prove to you that I am that I am. You wonder if these aren't the ones who are still following Jesus around. Scribes and Pharisees. In fact, if you're into biblical trivia, this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that the word Pharisee is used. They would have been protectors of the Torah. The first five books of the Old Testament. So intent was their protection that they also created rules and regulations in order to keep the validity of what Moses instructed. In fact, they even believed that on top of Mount Sinai, when Moses met God and received the instructions of the Ten Commandments, they believed that Moses also received the law of how to keep and what they can and cannot do from God. More than tradition to them, it was life. So Jesus is talking to these sinners and publicans. And they have a question. They don't ask the question to Jesus. It's sort of like if you have large families or a number of children in your family, you will know that all of the other children have basically chosen the one who goes and asks mom and dad for a favor. It's usually the oldest. That's the way it was in our family. Stephanie was the guinea pig. And the others would get her ear and say, go ask mom and dad if we can do this. The funny thing, when they'd come and ask mom and dad, we knew exactly who the question originated from. The Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher master you may have in your particular word, why does he eat with those people, publicans and sinners? Uh, They are setting themselves up, number one, for failure. But in their own eyes, they felt they had the Torah on their side. Tradition was on their side. In fact, they literally did believe that God does save sinners. But you had to come to God the way they determined you had to come to God. They had steps. They had the proverbial hoops that you had to jump through in order to get to that place where you were that good enough that then God would look at you 
and favor. And so their chastisement against the Savior was wondering, why do you waste your time on people whom God is not going to save? They've already made that determination. What's amazing in the passage doesn't relate to you, but Jesus doesn't wear hearing aids. He heard them. It's like my mother-in-law who's now closing in on 94, virtually paralyzed due to a massive stroke, but yet you cannot whisper in her presence. She will hear you. Bats got nothing over her. Me, take my hearing aids out, I'm lost. Jesus doesn't wear hearing aids because He heard them. I doubt that they were speaking in a loud voice. They may even gone to just maybe one of the disciples. We're not told. And they may have clasped their hands. Why does Jesus eat with sinners and publicans. And we don't. And Jesus hears it and He gives to them an interesting statement that they would have been aware of. He says, I haven't come to call those who are well. Healthy people don't need doctors. Only the sick. That would be a phrase that they would have been familiar with because it would have been used in other types of situations. They would have seen individuals who maybe were doing some good commerce. Not in any way cheating people. And they would have said, yes, Healthy people don't need doctors, only the sick. And they may very well would have seen individuals who they would notice to be ill and, and say, healthy people don't need doctors, only the sick. But in Matthew's Gospel, there's an addition that's why it's good that when you come to the, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are so closely coincided that to check them out, because most of what is done in one of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke is also spoken of in the other two. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew adds an interesting statement from Hosea chapter 6, in verse 6, when he says, sacrifice, I don't want. Only mercy. When you go back to the book of Hosea, you'll recognize that in chapter 6, 
God is chastising, if you will, the nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes, the northern kingdom. And they were doing all of what the law commanded them, plus they were also engaged in idolatry. And Hosea, speaking for God, warns them that it's not in the sacrifice that God delights, but it's in the mercy of your heart. I wonder if those words that these religious individuals heard might have stung them in the heart. Mercy. Mercy's not easily doled out in our society as it was in theirs. It's a commodity that individuals could hold over the heads of many people. Mercy is the giving of that. Or it is the keeping of that from you, which you deserve. Pharisees and scribes were lost from mercy. They held to the letter of the law. And Jesus said, it's mercy. There are four things I want to bring to your attention, and I'll do these quickly. Under the pronouncement story, the first one is this. In Jesus eating with the publicans and sinners, Jesus is making the statement that sinners do not need to do something first to become worthy in order that they may be recipients of God's love. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to gain any favor with God. We can't clean ourselves up before we come to the physician. We can't deal with our sin until we come to the Savior. And when Jesus sat down and ate with the publicans and sinners, He is declaring the fact that not only have I come to seek and to save that which is lost, but I'm reaching them where they are in order to take them where I want them to be. Sinners, there's nothing we can do to make ourselves acceptable unto God other than by grace through faith. The second thing, by eating with sinners... Jesus does not condone their sinful lifestyles, but He proclaims that these people and their lifestyles can be transformed. I'm glad that Jesus is in the business of transforming people. That we are not the same as we once were. Lost become found. 
guilty become set free. Sin becomes not only just forgiven, but it becomes forgotten. Thirdly, Jesus makes no distinction between people, but destroys the whole system of ranking and classifying people. Jesus does not set up a table open to full members only, but we can open the table to all, to all guests, that whosoever may come. Lastly, Jesus eating with sinners, Jesus does not fear of being contaminated by lepers or sinners, but instead contaminates them with God's grace and power. I have an evangelism training course in my library. Some of the opening statements are that interesting that it causes us to stop and think. And if one of the statements is this, is that believer people, if we could find a Christian McDonald's, we'd go to it. If we could find a Christian gas station, we'd go to it. If we could find a Christian grocery store, we'd go to it. And we find ourselves isolating us from those who need us the most. I'm not saying that we have to become a drug addict to to reach drug addicts. I'm not saying become alcoholics to reach alcoholics. But what I am saying is we have something, we have the power that lives within us to affect lives of people whom the world has given up on. Don't isolate yourself from unbelievers. Don't let them transform you. You transform them by the power of the Word of God. Speak to them the truth in love. Share with them the greatest news that they could ever imagine that Jesus Christ has come to eat with publicans and sinners. Let's pray. Our God, again, we thank You. We praise You for the lesson of Your Word that highlights the fact that Your mission should be our mission. Forgive us for being like scribes and Pharisees when we isolate ourselves from people whom we think aren't worthy of the kingdom. When in reality, if it wasn't for you, none of us would be worthy of your kingdom. Allow us the privilege, O Lord, maybe this week to speak to people concerning the grace and goodness of our King for you're worthy. And I praise you and thank you in your name. Amen.